Hi, we're here from Curiosity.com to help you get smarter in just a few minutes. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Today, you learn about why having too many choices stresses us out, how wormholes might cast a visible shadow, and an adorable test that measures how well children understand the rules of language. Let's satisfy some curiosity. Having too many choices stresses us out. And new research shows why, from a physiological point of view, there is definitely such a thing as too much choice. You know what I'm talking about. You walk into the store and you just want, like, a thing of iced tea or something. And there are 45 brands of iced tea. Well, yeah. And you and I were in New York this last week. And when we would try to choose a restaurant, look it up on Yelp. There are all these restaurants with, like, four and a half stars. How do you make a choice? Yeah, and it turns out we're not the only ones that feel overwhelmed sometimes. As reported by The Conversation, research from July 2019 looked at what happens to our bodies when we're making decisions, and the results are a little concerning. Plenty of previous research has shown that too much choice can lead to things like decision paralysis or dissatisfaction or just plain old regret. But it wasn't clear what people were actually experiencing physically when they were in the middle of making decisions. So a team of researchers from the university at Buffalo, the State University of New York, set out to discover whether people genuinely feel confident about their ability to make a good decision. And if so, when does this experience turn from good to bad? For their study, they asked participants to review online dating profiles. Talk about lots of choices. Some were asked to pick one profile from these options, some were allowed to pick a few options, and others just rated the profiles on a scale from 1 to 10. And while they did that, the researchers tracked the participants' cardiovascular responses. They found that when the participants chose from lots of options, they felt more invested in the decision, and their hearts beat harder and faster. But their arteries also constricted, which is a sign that they felt less confident about their decision. This matters because if they happen often enough, even minor exposures to this kind of cardiac activity are believed to have long-term health consequences, like heart disease and hypertension. So literally, having too many choices could be bad for your physical health. Which begs the question, how do we protect ourselves from choice overload? The study's lead author Thomas Saltzman suggests putting decisions into perspective. Most of the day-to-day choices you make aren't going to matter in the grand scheme of things. Which donut I get from the donut shop in the morning? Probably not going to change my life. But it also helps to enter these situations with a few clear guidelines of what you want and don't want. This will narrow down the possible choices, and it'll also make you more confident about your decision-making abilities. Removing the sheer weight of our choices can help us navigate a world overwhelmed by them. I do this every time I walk into a convenience store. If I don't know exactly what I want to drink, I'll be there for 20 minutes, just staring at the wall of beverages I can have. Do I want a soda? Do I want an iced tea? Do I want an iced coffee? Do I want a frappe? Do I want a slushy? Wow. Do I want milk? (laughs) That's a lot of choices. It is. Like artificial gravity and anything quantum, wormholes are one of those cheap writing tools that seem to make any sci-fi plot point possible. But they're also objects predicted by real scientific theories that real scientists are searching for. And it might surprise you to know that it may be possible to find a wormhole based on the visible shadow that it casts. So a wormhole is a theoretical object that basically takes a singularity, like the one at the center of a black hole, and extends it to a second location. 
That creates a tube-shaped path between two points by wrinkling the fabric of space-time as if you pinched together the two sides of a balloon. Wormholes are different from black holes, but they're related. Some concepts of wormholes require a black hole at one end. Both black holes and wormholes have an intense gravitational pull that warps the fabric of space-time and bends the path that light takes around them. But not all light. Some unlucky light particles fall in, producing a dark void scientists call a shadow. But here's the thing. While black holes are confirmed to exist, the existence of wormholes is much less airtight. One glaring issue is that if they do exist, we don't know how to keep one from collapsing instantly. To solve that, scientists came up with a theoretical material with negative pressure called exotic matter to keep the tunnel open. Of course, we don't know what, if anything, exotic matter really is. But just because you don't know if something exists doesn't mean you can't go looking for it. So just like black holes, wormholes should produce a shadow from the light that falls into them. And in fact, scientists have calculated the shape of a rotating wormhole's shadow. Chances of spotting any wormhole are slim, of course. To know the shape of the shadow requires knowing the geometry of the wormhole, and knowing the geometry of the wormhole requires knowing the nature of the exotic matter within it. And that, I'm sad to say, is a long way off. But at least it might be possible. You know, my first brush with wormholes was in the movie Contact with Jodie Foster. That was your first exposure to wormholes? I mean, that's my, in my first memory of it. I wanted to be that character. 1997, man, you missed out <laughs> on the Bajoran wormhole. What's that? Adjacent to Deep Space Nine. Yeah, we were a Star Wars family. I was not raised on Star Trek. Oh, that's why we're so different. <laughs> that explains every difference. Everything. When you turn a singular noun into a plural... You do it slightly differently every time. So shell becomes shells, but fish becomes fishes. Those are examples of what linguists call morphology or word formation. The question is, how do people know to make these plurals differently? Did they just learn these words on their own? Or did they learn the rules that they follow? To answer this question, a linguist in the 1950s quizzed small children with a measure that's come to be known as the WUG test. And it's adorable. It really is. For the study published in 1958, the linguist Jean Burko Gleason set out to understand how children think about morphology. She couldn't just ask kids to recite the plural forms of existing English words because there was no way to know whether they simply memorized the words themselves instead of understanding the rules for forming them. Instead, she came up with nonsense words. An experimenter would show the child a card with a bird-like creature on it, for example, with text that read, this is a wug. Then the researcher would show the child another card with two of the creatures on it, which said, now there are two of them. There are two blank. The child would have never heard of a wug, but if they knew the rules of morphology, they could easily answer correctly. There are two wugs, pronouncing the S like a Z. So they wouldn't say there are two wug, 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 I can't even say it. Wugs. I can't. So they wouldn't say there are two wugs. Yeah. Wugs or wugs. And they also wouldn't say there are two wugs. Burko Gleason found that, unsurprisingly, children's grasp of morphological rules got better with age. But the participants as a whole were more successful on some questions than others. Turning wug into wugs seemed to be the easiest for them all. In fact, the percentage of children who got that right was the same as for turning the real word glass into glasses. 
it wasn't quite as simple to pronounce a word like craw or loon as the plural cross or loons. Because, as Berko Gleason writes, you could end these words with an S or a Z sound and still have a possible English word. The results were enough for Berko Gleason to conclude that children really do possess what linguists call productive morphological capabilities. In fact, they grasp the rules of language at a much earlier age than previously assumed. So there you have it. The young children around you aren't just memorizing words. They're learning the rules we use to communicate. I mean, Cody's going to edit this beautifully, but I just want everyone to know that I had trouble using morphology on some of these words. <laughs> Language is hard. It is. We just make it sound easy. And now let's recap what we learned today. Today we learned that when you have too many options, your arteries literally constrict, which could lead to long-term health problems. We also learned that wormholes might cast visible shadows because their intense gravitational pull makes some light fall into them. And that when children are learning language, they're not just memorizing words, they're learning morphology, the rules we use to actually communicate. Kids are just so smart. They really are. Join us again tomorrow to learn something new in just a few minutes. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Stay curious. Stay curious.